Hey friends, it's good to be with you. So I don't uh, normally wear a shirt with a big word on it when I'm going to be up front because I want you to pay attention to the word of God, not the word on my shirt. But I realize um, I have a shirt that has a Greek word on it that I think is a pretty good sum one word summary of the entire book of Revelation. Anybody know what Nike means? Victory. Right? It's a good name for an athletic brand, right? Um, but... <laughs> so, think about the entire book of Revelation. Um, well, l let me say this first. There are 28 times the verb form of the word Nike appears in the Bible. 19 of those are in the book of Revelation. And, and Revelation teaches us how Jesus wins or this ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death. And, and that how that victory will be fully realized one day and how we can live in light of it now. So the verb form of, of the word Nike is usually translated conquer or overcome because we don't have an English verb for victory. Um, and at the, near the end of every single one of the, sorry, I'm still wearing my mask. I can take that off now. Um, at the end of every single one of the letters that we've looked at, the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches, there's a phrase, the one who conquers, the one who Nikes. And um, Jesus promises some amazing things to these conquerors, right? We've, we've seen it all throughout the letters. They will, and the conquerors are those who have faith in Jesus. So, They'll get to eat of the tree of life. That means we get to live forever. They will have authority over the nations. Last week we said they're going to sit on the throne with God. So somehow we're going to rule with God. And they will never be blotted out from the book of life. Right? Our, our destiny is secure. And, and a, several other things through, throughout that the conquerors get. So every one of the letters that we've read has the word Nike in it. 1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory, the Nike, that has overcome the world, our faith. So when you see the word Nike everywhere, think of that, right? Our faith in the victorious one, Jesus. So today we're doing the last of the seven letters, slightly out of order. So if you're taking notes, um, the, in the Nourish book, we kind of mix those up. So we're doing, we did Laodicea last week, Philadelphia this week. And this number seven is pretty significant. It pops up all throughout the Bible and a lot in Revelation, right? Seven lampstands, seven bowls, seven churches, seven letters, and it signifies completeness. 
right, when we see the number seven in the Bible, it, it typically signifies completeness. There's seven days in a week, right? It's, it, the week is, is over when there's seven days. Um, there's seven real churches that these letters were written to. Remember, we saw the map a couple weeks ago on all those cities. Um, so there's seven real churches, but it's not six, it's not eight, it's seven. So that, the fact that it's the number seven uh, points to the fact that all these letters are for all of us, for the whole church, throughout all of time. And there are two churches that we, um, that we looked at that, that appear the strongest. The churches that appear the strongest get nothing but rebuke from Jesus. And there are two churches that appear weak and insignificant and harassed, and they get nothing but praise and comfort from Jesus. And there are elements of all these letters that have hit home um, for us and cut to the heart. I've heard it in our discussions, right? Um, a couple weeks ago, someone was saying, you know, being convicted about grumbling in the workplace, and then like a few minutes later, Jeff says that from, from the front about grumbling and, and Sardis. It's like, why do you gotta call me out like that? Right, like that kind of stuff has been happening. Right, we've been, we've been hearing from the Spirit in the midst of all these letters. They're all relevant, but I'm glad we kind of went out of order and we're doing Philadelphia today because I think Philly is a lot like us in a lot of ways. And, um, and we get to end on a note of hope and encouragement instead of being spit out, you know, <laughs> for being lukewarm like last week. Um, so the church in Philadelphia is small, seemingly insignificant, but they were faithful. They patiently endured. And I happened to be looking at our, our uh, branding guide the other day, and one of the words we chose to, to like, describe our church's identity is scrappy. We work hard, right? We're small, but we work hard. Um, I think compared to many other churches, more of us serve and give and are committed to do whatever, whenever, wherever to make disciples of Jesus, right? Like, that's, that's awesome. Um, so to, to use another, like a modern Philly metaphor, I think we're kind of like Rocky Balboa in the first movie, right? Uh, <laughs> we're we're, we're uh, the underdog, scrappy, working hard when no one's looking, getting stronger, running up the steps of the Philly Art Museum. Can you hear the song? Um, and, and, uh, but we work hard not to earn the victory, but because Jesus already did. Um, by God's grace, we, we punch above our weight, right? We have impact, like Chris just told us, right? We have impact beyond, in our city, in our region, and the world that a church our size should not have, right? That's, that's grace of God. Um, and, of course, this is true in a sense, um, and yet it's aspirational in another sense, Right? They're, they're, we're, we work hard, but there are many ways that we can grow in our faithfulness. Uh, this, and 
I would guess the same was probably true for the church in Philadelphia. No church is perfect, but they didn't need a rebuke. Um, what they needed from Jesus was encouragement and hope to, to stay the course, to hang on, to persevere, um, and to, keep their, to get stronger, keep their eyes on him. So if I could summarize the message of Jesus to the church in Philly in one sentence, and I think it's the same message for us, it's have hope and hang on tight. So if you're taking notes, that's a good line to write down. Have hope and hang on tight. Of, of all the churches, Philly gets the most uh, promises, the most uh, sustained encouragement and, uh, that's full of comfort and, and hope. So reading through it, I, I counted six distinct promises that Jesus makes to the church. Um, and so what we're, we're going to do is I'm going to run through the six promises uh, and see kind of what that means for Philly, what that might mean for us, and, um, and I'll emphasize some over the others. So we'll, we'll move through those pretty quickly. Come on, hand me my water. So promise number one from verse eight, no one will shut the do- open door I've set before you. This promise in verse 8, I think, has to be connected to the main attribute of Jesus in verse 7. He's got the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut. So this is a direct quote from Isaiah 22. We're going to see a lot of connections back to Isaiah in this passage. Um, There's a story of Shebna and Eliakim. Probably not the most familiar story. Right? It didn't make it into the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, but Shebna was a steward in, in the palace, and he was wicked, and God's going to take him out and replace him with Eliakim. It's actually kind of graphic. It says God is going to take him, whirl him around, and throw him like a ball into an open land where he's going to die. Like, it's pretty intense. And but Eliakim is the, is the new steward, and Isaiah 22, 22 says about him, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. It's foreshadowing Jesus. It's placed on his shoulder because at the time, a key wasn't like, you know, these little keys that we have in our pockets. They were big wooden things that probably looked kind of like a wooden toothbrush that was like, that was really big. Uh, it's hard to describe how it worked. If you're curious, look up lock in the Britannica Encyclopedia, and you'll see a picture of, of like how it worked. It's really kind of ingenious and cool. And, and that en- encyclopedia entry actually quotes Isaiah 22. Um, so Eliakim's key provided entrance into the literal king's palace. Jesus' key provides entrance into his spiritual kingdom. The open door that can't be shut by anyone is the door to the kingdom. 
to the church in Philadelphia who was likely shut out of the synagogue, um, Jesus says, I've invited you in and no one can block your entry. Jesus says in this promise, have hope. No matter what doors are closed to you now, I've opened the most important door and no one can shut it. So promise number two, I will make your enemies come, bow, and learn that I've loved you. The church in Philadelphia was probably mocked, kicked out of their synagogue. They were small in number. Uh, That's likely what it means by the, the phrase you have, but little power. There were probably, just like other cities in nearby regions, there were probably Judaizers that wanted to convince the, the Christians that you had to follow all the Jewish clean laws and, um, and all the Pharisees' rules. The culture around them had many gods and goddesses and Caesar worship, and that probably exerted some pressure on these Christians to deny their faith. But... But Jesus is saying that one day their faith in Jesus will be vindicated by the presence of Jesus when he comes back. All all their enemies now will know one day that they were right. Isaiah 60 paints this beautiful picture of a reordered world where the people of God are radiant. Um, Nations come from all over. And bring their wealth, and they worship God. Isaiah 45 actually says your enemies will come and bow before you. And so the people of God, though they're mistreated, are vindicated for their faith in in God. And it's in this promise, it's as if Jesus is saying that prophecy for Israel is now for you, this Jew-Gentile combo church in Philadelphia. Um, all those who harassed and mistreated them would know that I have loved you, Jesus said. So that should give us great hope and courage. If you're living for Jesus in our culture now, at the very least, people are going to think you're strange, right? Um, However, increasingly, many around us see us as bigots, haters, intolerant for holding to biblical faith. They see us as what's wrong with uh, society. And many of you have probably wondered if one day you're going to be asked to do something at your job that goes against your faith and it's going to cost you your job. And you, you may have already experienced friends, um, co-workers, family members, distancing themselves from you or showing outright animosity toward you over some conflict of belief. To to the church in Philly and to us, I think in this promise, Jesus says, have hope, stay faithful, and one day all who are opposed to you for faith in me will acknowledge me and see that I've loved you. Number three, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I think in in that verse, it's clear, and I think it's the same in this verse. The the word keep doesn't mean keep you out of, but it's it's not about being removed from. It's about protection, about guarding. 
So it's unlikely that this promise is about a future trial that the Philadelphians won't endure because God keeps them out of it. It's more likely that it's about a a future trial that God's going to protect them through. The promise, I think, is about the protection of grace. So by his grace, we will be the victors, the conquerors. So in this promise, Jesus says, have hope. I will guard you from the evil one in the midst of the coming trials. So promise number four, I'm coming soon. Very first line of the book of Revelation says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So first, Connie is blessed for reading the scripture to us, right? We're blessed for hearing it, and we're all blessed for obeying. See, the book of Revelation is not primarily written so the church would know what's going to happen in the future. It's, I think it's primarily written so that we would do what's written in it in light of what's to come. Right? You might even say, just do it. It's far more, it's far more practical than... <laughs> It's, it's far, Revelation is far more practical than we often think. Um, it's, it's supposed to inform our practice as believers, not just inform us about what's to happen and seed endless arguments about what's going to happen in the future. Um, but that's, that's an aside. The, um, the, we hear this word soon at the very beginning, and in this passage to the Philadelphians, and then at the very end of Revelation, the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the whole Bible, Jesus says three times, I am coming soon. But it's been 2,000 years, right? Like, that, that word soon feels a little problematic, doesn't it? It is soon, in a sense, because it's already begun, We live in this tension, this paradox of this already and not yet uh, kingdom. So we are in the final era. Uh, Sin and death have already been defeated on the cross. And Jesus has not yet, but will come again to extend that victory into everything and every detail. The fullness of him filling all in all, like it says in Ephesians. So in in um, 2 Peter chapter 3, there, there are scoffers that ask, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, since the patriarchs died, uh, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, it doesn't look like God's inter- stepping in to intervene soon. Peter responds to those scoffers, and says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand, as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If a thousand years 
or like a day. It's only been two days, right? But I think Peter's point through this is God's not slow to keep his promise. He's patient. He's lovingly waiting for more people to turn to him. So in this promise that he's coming soon, Jesus is saying, have hope, I'm coming back for you. It might not feel like it now, but in light of eternity, it is soon. So promise number five, I'll make you pillars in the temple of my God. You'll never have to leave. In AD 17, there was a devastating set of earthquakes in, um, in Philadelphia. And, and it probably shaped the culture of the city for generations. Most of the construction in the city must have been relatively new because so much had been destroyed. And, and they probably had the sense that even the biggest, strongest buildings wouldn't last. And I can imagine kind of a low-level dread all the time because of, of that in their recent history. Um, and the earthquake would have displaced many people, left them scrambling to reestablish their homes and jobs. And Jesus is telling the Philadelphians they're going to be unshakable pillars in this everlasting temple of God. And I think he's saying to us and to them, have hope. You will have a permanent place of honor in my temple, and you'll never be displaced. And the last promise, number six. I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name. Isaiah 48, 2 says, For they call themselves after the holy city. So we see it a couple of times, the people of God are sometimes referred to as the city of God. And in all these letters, Jesus brilliantly incorporates something about the setting, about the city itself, into the message to that city. And we know from history that after the earthquake, Caesar said, hey, you guys in Philly, don't pay any taxes for a little while. Like, everything's gone haywire. He sent relief. Um, and the city of Philadelphia temporarily renamed itself Neo-Caesarea, Caesar's new city. So the city was named after Caesar for a time. And, and it's, it's as if Jesus is promising the church, you're not going to be named after Caesar. You're going to get three new names written on you. For, the, for God the Father, New Jerusalem, and Jesus' new name that will only be revealed on that last day. So Jesus says, have hope. Now you may consider your identity to be small, connected to the world around you, but your ultimate identity is to be mine. Jesus gives the Philadelphians no rebuke, but he does give them two commands. First he says, behold, Jesus is saying, look, notice this. Notice the open door. Notice that you're going to be vindicated. The silence and meditation and slowing down that we've been doing over the last few months helps us notice what God's done, right? It breeds hope. So Jesus gives six promises that all lead to hope, and then he gives one command that also leads to hope. I think this letter's about hope, right? Like, it, he's just emphasizing it over and over, have hope. And when we do that, we're encouraged, we're given courage uh, to persevere, to hang in there, to believe that a better day is coming. 
And on that day, Jesus will say, Behold, I make all things new. There will be no more sickness, suffering, pain, death. We'll finally get to see him face to face. And, and Jesus, um, the very presence of Jesus will light up the whole world. And, and last command. He says, in verse 11, Jesus says, Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Crown's a symbol of victory. Think like ancient Olympics, the laurel wreath crown. This is the second command, hold fast or hang on tight. Um, very quick story. Um, years ago with our MC, we went camping. It was the, on the Green River, and, and, and Nathan and I wanted to cross the, the river. It's kind of shallow at that point in the summer, and, um, but there's a section that's really swift. Nathan was probably six or so, um, and so we said, all right, let's, we'll, we'll cross together, and you hang on to me. So he, just, he put his arms around my waist, and, and as we stepped into the swiftest part of the river, he was horizontal, right? But he's hanging on to my waist. Um, and of course, I'm hanging on to him, too. And we, you know, make it across. Made Kate a little nervous, but... Uh, um, and, but all he had to do was hang on tight. And I think that's what Jesus wants us to do with him. To, the water's getting swift, but he's unmoved. We just need to hang on and, and hang on to him as he protects us and takes the brunt of the, the wave. Let me read second, another, um, another verse from 2 Peter 3. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Because of the gospel, we are spotless and without blemish. We are now considered righteous. We're justified. Somebody told me a long time ago, justified means just as if you never sinned. Um, so what does it mean to be diligent to be found in the way that we already are? I think it, must, it means we must keep coming back to the gospel. We need to remember and meditate on the gospel a lot more than we think. All these nourish practices that we've been doing, um, they're sometimes called spiritual disciplines, and we've intentionally downplayed that word, or that term, spiritual disciplines. Um, as you see, I don't think we need to discipline ourselves to read the Bible and pray more. We need to discipline ourselves to repent of the fact we think we don't need to. We need to work hard to, um, to like, that's where the discipline comes in. Um, our actions of not praying, not reading the Bible, not slowing down, betray our hearts. It proves we believe we can cross the river alone. And we need to discipline ourselves to have faith then in Jesus. He said, Jesus said, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. So repentance and faith are the true spiritual disciplines. That's what we work hard at. And they lead us to praying and reading the Bible and slowing down and noticing God at work. So those things are means, excuse me, um, means of grace. 
their habits of grace. And it's not something we have to do, it's something we get to do. So let's reflect on the the gospel together. Um, Go ahead and serve one another the, the bread and the wine or juice. And as you do that, um, let me um, remind you, uh, remember Eliakim? He had a large wooden key put on his shoulder to open the literal house of David. Jesus is the better Eliakim. He had a large wooden beam put on his shoulder to open the door to his kingdom. It's a door that no one can shut. Romans 8 says, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Soma family, Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for us. His body broken, his blood spilt uh, for us. He won the victory over sin and Satan and death. And he's coming soon to make everything sad come untrue. So have hope and hang on tight. Father, thank you for sending Jesus for us. Um, We were dead in our sin apart from you. There was nothing we could do to be made right with you. Um, It's a a door that we could not open. And and through uh, the work of Jesus on the cross, the door is now open for us. And, and no one can shut it. Thank you that um, the, the, that is the, the truth. Help us to live in light of that, uh, confidently, patiently enduring, um, because uh, you, have, uh, you have opened the most important door to us. In Jesus' name, amen.